Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our public debates and how we can get better at engaging with people who are different from ourselves. As usual, if you're liking the podcast, we would love you to leave us a review because they make me really happy. Rate us and share with your friends. In this episode, I'm speaking with Christina Patterson. Christina is a writer and a broadcaster, a former chief executive of the Poetry Society and columnist for The Independent. She now writes for The Guardian, The Sunday Times and The Daily Mail about culture, society, politics and books and is a regular commentator on Sky News. Her book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, was a book of the year in both The New Statesman and The Mail on Sunday, which must mean it's good at crossing tribal boundaries and is a memoir about surviving life in the 21st century. We discussed her sacred value of public service, her time as an evangelical Baptist, the role of columnists and commentators and how personal we should be in public. I really hope you enjoy listening. Christina, I'm going to kick off with a really big meaty question that I ask everyone to try and think about that some people find very easy and some people find very difficult. Having had a little bit of time to reflect, do you have a sense of what your sacred values are? The things that you try and live by, the principles that when those are threatened, you feel quite compromised and you react quite strongly to that? Yes, I would say fundamentally it's about truth truth and kindness and integrity and public service my parents my father was um deeply honorable man so honorable that when we used to come back from our summer holidays in sweden he would stop off at customs and try to declare the furniture he'd bought from Ikea, which nobody else thought you had to do. And indeed you didn't have to do, but he was so law abiding that he felt he really took it to quite an extreme. And that's how I was brought up. And with the belief that what's more important than anything is how you behave on this planet, not what you achieve. And tell me a bit more about your childhood. That's really helpful to hear about your father. What were the kind of formative ideas from him or elsewhere in the air, whether they were philosophical or religious or political, that you think have helped shape who you are today? Well, my father and and mother were, we went to church. We were went to an Anglican church. My father kept a prayer book on his bedside table. Uh, and we did have to go to church every Sunday until I rebelled against that. Nobody talked about religion at home, although... When I was little, I remember my mother, my mother was Swedish. Uh, she would say prayers in Swedish with us. So I certainly was brought up as a child to believe in the Christian story and more importantly, the Christian values of, you know, the ones you might sum up in 1 Corinthians 13. And so that was really, really fundamental. But on top of that, both my parents and in fact, my entire extended family worked in public service. So my mother was a teacher. My father was a civil servant. My aunt was a social worker. My, I mean, I, I won't go through every single member of my family, but essentially nobody made any money by doing anything kind of entrepreneurial or in business. And I was absolutely brought up to believe that you were here to contribute to society. That's what life was for really. And to be a kind and compassionate and thoughtful human being. So when I was doing an MA in literature uh, at University of East Anglia, sitting around reading George Eliot and uh, and Derrida and Bart and so on, my father wrote me a slightly fierce letter on blue Basildon Bond paper. And at the head of the letter in block capitals was were the words, on rendering unto Caesar. And what followed was uh, essentially a kind of 
when the hell are you going to get a job, darling, letter. But it was put much more sternly than that. It was about the duty of the citizen to pay taxes and contribute to society. And as someone who had already had the huge privilege of doing a degree and now of doing a further degree, I had already been subsidised by taxpayers who would never have the opportunity for that kind of education. And essentially, it was time for me to take responsibility and make sure that I contribute to society, not just through work that was you know, meaningful, but literally by paying taxes. So that was absolutely the core of my value system. And, and on top of that, my mother, having come from Sweden, was really from social democracy. And um, the belief was that you, we should all be fighting for equality of opportunity and fiercely anti-private schools. I'm still, I'm politically, I'm very much centre ground these days, but I still believe very, very strongly that it's a really bad way to run a society when 7% of the population get creamed off into kind of elite education. So I suppose those values were really about fairness, honesty, integrity, kindness and public duty. Do you mind me asking about your schooling then? What was influential in that? Well, I went to the local primary school in the estate, housing estate where I grew up. And it was uh, quite a progressive school because those were quite progressive days. So you didn't uh, really, I mean, I I suppose, I mean, I seem to remember that what I did was endless topics on the Romans and ancient Egypt and playing on the adventure playground, (laughs) nothing very formal. And having read Enid Blyton's Mallory Towers books, I was desperate to go to some, you know, very conventional school. And so when I did, we had the 11 plus and when I passed and went to the local grammar school, which sort of almost instantly went comprehensive, I was dying to wear the uniform and my best friend and I both bought the optional red hat and then discovered we were the only people in school wearing the optional red hat. So we stopped pretty, pretty sharpish, but I was kind of dying for sort of a conventional boarding school education as I'd, with the one I'd read about, which I, I certainly didn't get. But my, my secondary school was pretty academic. But again, actually, I'm still in touch with those friends from all those years ago. And one is a GP, one's a psychologist, one works in advertising. But generally, again, the values really were of public service. So I, I was, I remember at university meeting someone who said to me, well, you know, the, the point in life is to get on, isn't it? And I was thunderstruck. I was naively thunderstruck because it had literally never occurred to me that that was what you were here for. You know, I was absolutely brought up to believe that you were here to serve. Tell me about the moment when you came to rebel then, because you've talked about uh, going to church every Sunday. What changed? Oh, Camus, Sartre, all that stuff. And age 13, I was reading French literature and we had quite a bohemian French teacher. And I was also reading sort of romantic thrillers like Mary Stuart. And I just thought, well, this is clearly nonsense, isn't it? And as someone of brooding intensity and integrity, I can't possibly say words I don't believe. So I would stand in church stonily, not saying the words to any of the prayers or singing the hymns until my parents, I think, sort of dying of embarrassment said, it's all right, Christina, you don't have to go anymore. Um, So I, you know, that was that really. But then I had a rebellion on the other side, which um, I can tell you about if you like. So you weren't out of church for that long, I gather. What, what, um, what drew you back in? Tragically, what drew me back in was uh, adolescence, puberty and wanting to meet boys. So having gone to a girls' grammar school that then turned comprehensive, my girls' grammar school was no longer paired off with the boys' grammar school, which my brother went to, because that went independent. So the independent boys' school was then paired off with the local girls' private school, And my school had no school to be paired off with. So there was a a huge shortage of boys. And when my friend of my 
brothers invited him to a local youth club, my brother said, I could come too and my friend my best friend Louise so we went along not quite realising that it was attached to a Baptist church and there were all these very cool looking boys in their leather jackets all with motorbikes and we thought wow we've arrived in heaven but what we didn't realise was that there was a whole evangelical well actually Baptist infrastructure surrounding it and soon we were invited to go along to church we went to church it was a church called Millmead in Guildford there was a very very charismatic in both senses of the word charismatic personality wise and also charismatic in terms of the then movement of the so-called gifts of the Holy Spirit so I got sucked into that and I was then a Baptist evangelical Christian fundamentalist I suppose you could say until my mid-20s until I was 26. How do you think that season of your life has formed you? What what did it leave you with? It left me very scarred, actually, very, very scarred. I had a very difficult time. I, I had a sister who had schizophrenia who had huge struggles in her life. And whether or not it's coincidence, I don't know. But I began to develop physical problems of my own. I got, when I was 25, I developed s- strange pains in my wrists and then my ankles spread up to my knees. And by the time I was 26, I was literally crippled and unemployed and helpfully a virgin because uh, unfortunately, as soon as I'd gone near the boys, I was then told we weren't allowed to touch the boys because you weren't allowed to do anything unless you were married, which we weren't. So it was very tough. And at my church and in my house groups and Bible study, everyone kept saying, the Lord wants to heal you. And there was I, 25 and then 26, in terrible pain with a very limited life, begging out to God to heal me as I understood the Bible had promised that he would and nothing happened. And I got more and more traumatised by the whole thing, actually, so that in the end, there were all kinds of things going on in my family. My poor sister had a washing up job in a local canteen, which she lost. My brother was suffering from depression and I just cracked and I thought I didn't actually lose my faith. I I hated God. And in my diary wrote one day, I won't quote the language, but I basically told him to F off. And that was that. What would you call yourself now? Are you still in a place where you didn't lose your faith, but you hate him or? No, <laughs> no, I don't still hate God. How would God. you self-describe? <laughs> as an atheist, actually, as an atheist. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe in a God, but I, but I do believe that human beings are hardwired for religious belief and storytelling. And I do believe that it's a very deep instinct in us to want to make sense of things in those ways. And I also now have quite a lot of sympathy for the Anglicanism of my childhood, which is still the Anglicanism of a lot of churches in this country, which I think is pretty inclusive, pretty tolerant, Uh, very much a lot of the time about values rather than ideology. And I think that's actually the values that come out of that, which are of, generally speaking, of kindness, are very good values. So I'm much less intolerant of religion now than I used to be, but I'm very worried by fundamentalism. Mm. I'm just really sad to hear about that story. I've read about it a little bit because you've written beautifully about that experience. And it's interesting for me personally, because I have an almost identical story and that I didn't come from a a vaguely Christian background, sort of culturally so, but certainly not personally. And then was not interested in church at all. And then was invited to a youth group because of the boys and then to a Christian festival because of the boys. Which one? (laughs) Soul Survivor. Oh, I've not heard of that one. Yeah. 
um, and spent the whole week there not going anywhere near the tent where the crazy people were speaking in tongues, but, you know, hanging around the skate park. But then on the last day prayed, you know, God, if you're real, would you show me and have a very powerful charismatic experience, which when I I think about my life is a real turning point. And although in lots of ways intellectually, you know, I've taken my faith apart and had a period of being an atheist and there's, you know, there's lots of areas of that tribe that I wouldn't necessarily feel deep affinity with now. There's lots of areas where I would, when I look back on it, it feels to me like it was very psychologically protective for me at that period in my life. Because feeling like there was someone outside my group of friends whose approval and acceptance of me was not determined on whether I was too tall or too fat or too attractive or too clever, but that fundamentally I was loved and that wasn't going to change. You know, I look at my diaries before that point and the diaries after, and I was radically happier and continued to find great psychological health and wholeness in that. And so reading your story, one moment just made me really sad. and has got me thinking about the way a very similar set of ideas can land in different people in completely different ways and handled, you know, taught in slightly different ways can, can have an enormous impact on people's lives. So I guess it's really helpful to hear that your, you know, your early Anglicanism, the, the kind of the value there is sort of coming into focus again. You've also written beautifully about the Bible and that period of your life, leaving you with a kind of literary imprint. Do you mind saying a bit more about that? Yes. I, I mean, I've always been a, a huge reader. Actually, strangely, during my Christian years, was those were the years when I read the least literature. I read lots of so-called Christian books, which were kind of, you know, essentially very dramatic stories about conversion, like, you know, The Cross and the Switchblade. Yes. <laughs> or, or um, what's the, t- I can't the remember. The about the dragon. From witchcraft to Christ, yes. things like that. <laughs> Oh, very, very dramatic. Sorry. But the Bible was in me anyway because of my childhood. And actually, the the translations of the Bible that I read in my evangelical Christian years, I suppose largely New New International Version and the Good News Version, which is pretty banal in terms of it's there's not much poetry in it. The whole of Western literature is infused with the Bible and so is the whole of Western art. So if you don't know anything about the Bible, you are going to miss a huge, well, layers and layers of richness and complexity in literature and art, but also the poetry of it, the rhythms of it, the poetry of it. And I think you you heard I was doing a podcast the other day when uh, Mark McGuinness, who was interviewing me, asked me about the somehow the Bible came up. And I realised that I have a, a sort of use rhetorical repetition quite a lot in my writing. And it's kind of a characteristic, a recognisable characteristic. And I've had the odd sub-editor over the years who said, oh, I think you could cut that repetition. And I've thought, no, I absolutely want that repetition in there because that's kind of, you know, the poetry of it. And I think probably a lot of that does come from the Bible. Talk to me about that thread then, because you've had a fascinating and just a career that sounds like an enormous amount of fun in kind of uh, various bits of the literary world and the poetry society, and then quite late in comparison going into journalism as a columnist. Um, what What's the thread? What's the pull? What's the vocation that's led you through that? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I think it's funny because I think I always wanted to be, I mean, I always wanted to be a writer, of course, but I never thought I could. And actually that was part of part of my public service upbringing was that sense that you had to, that writing was a bit kind of kooky and, you know, kind of um, self-indulgent actually. So I went into, initially went into publishing and then I went into arts admin. 
which was fascinating. And I met and worked with lots of fascinating writers, some of the world's top writers, some you know, of the 20th century, some of whom have died since in when I worked in my years at the South Bank Centre and then running the Poetry Society. And I really loved those jobs. They were very, very interesting. But the only way, and I suppose studying, having done a degree in literature and then an MA in literature, I, I lost any belief that I could write creatively myself because I thought there's a whole the world literature out there. How could one possibly have the hubris to add to it? But what I did do from about the age of 25 was I reviewed other people's work. So I did book reviews, well, for about 15 years and the odd interview and the odd feature. And then I was approached by the literary editor of The Independent to say he said his deputy was leaving and would I like to apply for the role? And at that point, I was running the Poetry Society and, and loving it and thinking, oh, no, I don't know that I want to leave this lovely job to essentially go and open jiffy bags um, somewhere else. But I also thought, this is it. You won't get another chance to work on a national paper so I took the opportunity and I started off as deputy literary editor and then eventually uh, wrote a column twice a week and became a full-time writer. I suppose the thread, it's difficult when people ask about threads because vocation is, most people don't have the luxury of a vocation actually. And of course, we would all love to earn a living by doing the thing we adore. But if the thing you adore is being a Premier League footballer or a film star, then you're probably going to have to recognise quite early that's not going to happen. And even doing something you quite enjoy is is sort of a luxury of certain tranches of the Western world. So I wouldn't want to be precious about that. But I do think that generally speaking, we are happiest in life when we feel that we are making the most of our talents and I suppose I feel that the thing that I love doing most, I mean, it's sort of quite painful at the time, but to have done it is writing, writing from your heart about stuff that is interesting. So I'm I'm interested in pretty much everything. I'm you know mad about art and literature and poetry, but I'm also obsessed with politics and current affairs and society. I'm luckily not at all interested in sports, so I can, you know, not engage with that at all. Uh, but the rest of it I am interested in. So I would say really the kind of vocation bit is about curiosity. It's about looking and trying to understand and trying to analyse and trying to formulate thoughts. So really it's about ideas. And, and for me, actually, it all comes back to the Keats thing about beauty and truth in Ode on a Grecian Urn. I think that sort of covers everything, really. If you feel that you are seeking the truth, whatever that means to you. And the beauty is both looking for the beauty in life and also trying to create something beautiful in the process. Mm. I wanted to to ask about, you know, in your your life post deciding you weren't a Christian, what are the rituals or the ideas or the practices that have helped you build meaning? And is there anything else you have drawn strength from or meaning or solace outside religion that um, you, you might call spiritual or, 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 mm. or not? Literature, poetry, I think for, for me, the nearest, in some ways I get to a spiritual experience is when I'm reading a really great piece of literature or a really great poem, and it just hits you here and you think, this is what life is like. And then making profound connections with other humans and feeling that you are listening and being heard and understanding and being understood. And essentially that you are not alone and that other people 
are not alone. I wrote a book which came out last year and in some ways I think the main reason I wrote it was to make people who suffer feel less alone. That was kind of, even in my Christian years when I was going through a terrible time, I wanted to write a book that would help people cope with the suffering in their lives. But obviously, you know, I wasn't Jesus, so I couldn't write the Bible, but um, not that Jesus did write the Bible. But so, so I, I think it's that connection really. It's, and that feels like a kind of truth, seeing truth, hearing it, the joy, the absolute joy of seeing humanity at its best, seeing a beautiful landscape, nature, a flower, for me, I get a huge amount of pleasure out of a glass of wine. I, I, I love, I love, you know, I love <laughs> drink. I love wine. I love crisps. So I would say the nearest I get to a religious ritual in my life is probably sitting down for a delicious glass of wine and some kettle chips. <laughs> is something uh, sacramental um, in it? It's my version of the communion. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the book because one of the things that I find challenging in our public conversations is it feels like vulnerability is something of a taboo and the sort of kind of success-based living, best foot forward, slightly spun version of ourselves as personal brands or as organizations, or as political parties or whatever it is, makes complete sense in a kind of competitive logic, but is not at all true to the human experience. And I think quite damaging for how we feel about ourselves. So how easy was it for you to write a book that's essentially about vulnerability and failure and picking yourself up again after crises? What was the journey of that? Well, it did feel exposing, obviously, and it is very exposing because I talk about some very personal stuff and some, you know, what felt like a lot of failures in a lot of areas. But I suppose one of the things you learn in life is that literally everybody suffers. Literally everybody experiences embarrassment or mortification. Most people feel that they fail in many ways. Successful people feel a bit of a fraud. Very successful people usually feel that they have failed because to be that driven, you generally have to feel that you have failed in order to drive yourself further. And I suppose partly I've had cancer twice. I'm intensely aware that life is short and I can't really be bothered to mess around anymore. So if anyone is going to laugh at me for exposing myself, that's fine. It's fine. I would rather be honest. And I know that many people experience the things I've written about. So I don't really find that embarrassing. And I think it would be helpful if people were more honest. I don't mean that we should all be in some great, you know, kind of therapy-a-thon where we're all sitting around weeping and talking about how terrible we feel. I don't think that's necessarily helpful. I think even sometimes talking about how we feel isn't necessarily helpful. Sometimes you're better off just having a bit of a laugh with a friend and talking about something else or going to see a good film or something. But I do think without getting into the B word, which is consuming every waking moment for me and a lot of other people in the country at the moment, I think more honesty would have taken us to a different place. And I think honesty about complexity is generally better. I think if people understand that things are complicated and difficult, they are more patient and understanding than if you pretend that they're simple. And very few things in life are simple. I mean, my book is generally found in the self-help section of bookshops, but it isn't a self-help book. If anything, it's a kind of anti-self-help book. And in as far as 
there is a message, which there isn't really, because it's all about a layering of stories and meaning. It is that literally every human being finds their own way through the challenges and complexities of life. And there are certain consistent threads which may or may not be helpful if you are suffering in particular ways. But if only life could be reduced to a PowerPoint slide or a political manifesto or a slogan that wins a referendum, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Talk to me about writing personally, and and you do in the book and elsewhere write about uh, grief and loss and cancer and singleness and all these issues that so many of us have experienced. It strikes me as in a moment when the media is in real crisis and you're no, no longer a paid by a paper, but a freelance journalist, are there pressures for people to be more personal than they would naturally want to in order to kind of build a personal brand or to carve out space in a noisy world? And have you experienced that? Do you worry about it? Mm. I think there probably are pressures in that direction. I think there is a, a sort of, there has been a very worrying shift towards narcissism. And I think that's been exacerbated by social media and this whole idea that you are a brand and have to push yourself as a brand. And the horrible truth is that now you kind of do. If you don't have any followers on Twitter, for example, you're going to be challenged to find a publisher if you want to have a book out or things like that. So I think up to a point, you have to play that game. In terms of the writing, exposing stuff, I mean, I I don't think I'm, strangely, I don't think I'm the most interesting thing in the whole world. I think the world is very interesting. I'm, I find what's happening in Westminster at the moment infinitely more interesting than anything that's gone on in my own head ever. I only write about things that are personal when I'm confident that I can control the way that that will appear. I wouldn't want someone else to write that because, well, I mean, not so precious that, you know, people can write what they like, but I, I only do it if I think, if I think, yeah, that's okay. I haven't, if it feels sort of okay-ish. I mean, I was a bit alarmed. I wrote a piece about being single for the male a couple of years ago and the headline said, Christina Patterson had been single for 51 years. And I thought, I don't think I popped out of the womb as a single, as a kind of spinster. You know, I think allow me maybe twenty years when I'm not classified by whether or not I'm, you know, with a bloke or not. So I did find that rather irritating, I have to say. And you don't have control over headlines, and I do, and I have been asked to write personal things that I I won't do. In fact, I was asked recently to write a piece about a very personal piece. And I said, no, and I do say no quite a lot, but I think there is a pressure in that direction. Yes. And actually the thing I would add to that is a degree of sexism, which is, I think as a woman, you are much more pressurized to write that kind of piece. You know, I would rather be writing about politics now, but if, you know, someone wants a piece about me being single or what it's like to be single, I'll do it because that's also, I think a third of, the population is now single. So I think it's a significant societal phenomenon and one that's worth thinking about and engaging with from a non-narcissistic viewpoint. But it does irritate me that the blokes get to write about the Westminster village and the girls get to write about, you know, makeup or whatever. Mm, It does feel like, and I found it on the podcast as well, that there's something, and I I think this doesn't work for either of us, that men have been socialised to find it more difficult to to talk about themselves and to reflect on their own values and their own story and often see kind of facts and evidence as disembodied things away from that. Whereas I think women find it both easier to talk about themselves and reflect personally in public, but then sometimes get in, put in boxes of being, you know, 
hysterical or mm. self-concerned. So I, I don't know what this kind of healthy middle ground is where we acknowledge our embodiedness and our stories and our perspective and our lenses and the things that have shaped us without making that primary because the cult of personality is no good either. Right? Mm, mm. Um, talk to me a bit about the state of journalism more generally. When you were a columnist on The Independent, you know, I, th- I do think perhaps less so now with the diversification of media, but still in a continual way, columnists do have a huge amount of influence and power in how people think. You know, we don't have time to form coherent opinions on everything. So reading someone that you like and trust, it's very easy to just sort of import what they think. So how did you conceive of your moral responsibility? Well, when you're writing columns for The Independent, but still now where you're writing columns in, in lots of different places. And how do you think that's developed over time? Mm, that's a very, very difficult question to answer because I think a lot of journalists would balk at the phrase moral responsibility. Why do you think? Because if you are, for example, trying to think of a good analogy, if you are working in a shop and you're told, you know, how do you take your moral responsibility when you when you sell that shirt or something? I mean, there is, a, I suppose there is a moral responsibility. For example, if somebody asks, do I look fat in this? And they look really fat and you say, no, you don't. You could argue that that's a dereliction of your moral responsibility. But if you're a columnist, it's your job to come up with an interesting argument. And you have almost no time. So you're waking up in a kind of cold sweat thinking, oh, what's the item in the news today? And um, and you're desperately trying to come up with an interesting angle on it. And then you get that agreed that will by your editor and that will go to conference. And you might be asked to write something completely different at 11 o'clock and you have to file your copy by three o'clock. So there is very little time to do, you know, you're not sitting there flicking through, you know, textbooks, giving it huge amounts of thought. You haven't got that amount of time. So in one sense, a column is more like just a minute than than a very pondered process because it's so, so quick. And in fact, I, I saw my former boss at the Indy, who's now at The Guardian last week, and she said one of their columnists who will remain nameless was asked by someone to write um, about the hijab. And he said, he said, fine, fine. He said, am I for it or against it? <laughs> and, and, and sometimes it's quite finely balanced. Sometimes you don't a column isn't about your feelings anyway. It's an argument. So on some things, you can make strong arguments one way or the other. And on lots of issues, it wouldn't necessarily matter all that much because anyway, any anyone with half a brain ought to be changing their mind all the time about all kinds of things. So if you're not constantly adjusting your views, I, I read columns I've written and I thought, oh, I don't agree with that, you know, and I wrote it. But morally, I suppose I, I, suppose I think you personally... I wouldn't feel comfortable writing something I definitely believed not to be the case. So I think you can, there are certain things you can argue either way, but on balance, you ought to feel that the argument you're making is the one that you would put your weight behind. I'm really interested by that because I feel like, and this is coming from a place of someone who is not hostile to the media in general. I'm a bit like CJ from the West Wing and that I have a very soft place in my heart for journalists. And d- often I'm defending the media against people like bl- blaming all society's ills. But at the same time, it does feel like that what you've just said indicates there might be something wrong with the system. <laughs> because given that I think people do take columnists' views quite seriously as a way of outsourcing our need to decision make, the fact that m- most columnists would worry about the phrase moral responsibility and just situationally don't have the time to frame or research or, you know, do the things that they might want to do in another situation. So it would be either 
taking columnists less seriously and having some kind of disclaimer, like, you know, I wrote this in 24 hours, I might change my mind next year, or finding some way to create more space for proper analysis and reflection. And I think that is happening in some places with long reads, but yes, is there a yes. more of a moral urgency about that than I think I'd realised? Yeah, I mean, I, but I wouldn't want to suggest that people are writing in bad faith. I think people try to do the best they can within the constraints, but the daily news cycle, which is now a 24-hour news cycle, the constraints are very, very tight. So I would say that most columnists I know or have known do try to do that. And I'm not saying it's, um, I wouldn't want to suggest that example I gave of the hijab, I was shocked by. Uh, I think also things have changed with Twitter and with the rise of digital journalism. I don't think columnists do have the weight they used to have. I mean, I, I still read them, but I've I've written some pieces for a younger journalist and she says she never reads columns. I think a lot of a lot of even journalists don't read columns anymore. That's changed. And you, you do get that sort of knee-jerk instant opinion on things, but knee-jerk instant opinion isn't the same as a column. So I wouldn't want to suggest it's cynical, but it has to be quick because there is, you can't, if you're, if you're responding to something that you've just heard about, you can't go away and research it, but you can do, I've done longer pieces. I've did stuff for the Sunday Times magazine about the prevent strategy, for example, and that was based on, you know, 30 interviews over months and months and months or on so-called jihadi brides and the reasons they do that. So there is space to do that more thoughtful research, but that space isn't in a column. One of the things I'm aware of, because I know quite a few journalists and freelance journalists, is the difficulty of the moment in terms of carving out that kind of career. And this enormous question mark, which has been around since I left the BBC eight, seven, eight years ago, about how do we create a sustainable business model, given how important the media is for framing the public conversation. And it doesn't exclusively happen through the media, but there is enormous amplification of perspectives that happens through the media, whether that's digitally or old school. What is your kind of hope and fear for how we might navigate our way through this? Is it just an enormous cultural shift where we all need to be paying for content? Is it more state subsidy, more globally? What do you think would help us retain a hold on your sacred value of, of at least some, <laughs> some modicum of truth and analysis and reflection rather than what feels like an increasingly unstable, noisy, unreliable uh, Malay. Mm. Well, I can't pretend not to be very depressed by the situation. I and you know, whole generations of lost of journalists have lost their jobs, and we're not going to get those jobs again. And you know, you can do the kind of freelance hackery, and most of us do some journalism, but obviously, you're earning a fraction of what you earned before if that's what you do. For, for most people, I mean, if you're really, really determined and you pitch every day, you probably could earn, you know, something reasonable. But I don't particularly want to do that at this point in my life. It is very depressing and nobody has come up with an answer. There are certain hopeful signs. The Times has, by charging for its online content, is doing much better. The Guardian's membership scheme has reaped quite significant rewards. On the other hand, I think 2,000 people have already lost their jobs since the beginning of January and including people who wrote for the pool. And I was, you know, I know someone, a young friend of mine who was, a columnist at the pool. She was due to come for lunch that day. A lot of those journalists, whether they were freelancers or staff, haven't been paid and won't be paid. So it's very, very tough times. And rates for journalism are very low anyway. Some of them are half what they were 20 years ago. So I think it has to be 
probably a charging for content thing in the way that people pay for Netflix. I don't see why they shouldn't pay for their news and comment. But the trouble is by letting the genie out of the bottle in giving the content away for free in the first instance, it's then quite difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. And I think that was a major, major mistake. And I understand mistakes do get made in these circumstances and the whole model had imploded and the advertising revenue was disappearing. And the hope was that advertiser would attach itself to websites which provided free content. But that hasn't really worked. So for example, The Independent, which sadly doesn't exist as a newspaper anymore and is doing quite well and is charging, now has got a kind of 5.99 per month thing going. It has become very clickbaity. And I I personally don't like clickbaity journalism. I'm glad you said it. That was going to be my my comment that um, The Independent is not, and it's not alone. But many have moved to this this incredibly kind of amplifying, exaggerating, you know, in very kind of theological terms, seemingly appealing to our worst instincts. And I worry about the formation effect of that. I don't, I don't know. Want to leave that on such a depressing note? But I really don't know what to say that would uh, give us some more hope, except maybe encouraging listeners to go find someone you trust and pay for their content. I want to ask a final question, which is about how we speak to, across difference and just anything general that you've learned from that. And then if you're willing specifically about the belief-non-belief debate, are there things that you'd like Christians to do differently or to do better when they engage with people who wouldn't call themselves believers? On difference and non-difference, you have to listen. You have to listen. You have to give each other the space to speak and be heard. But you also, generally speaking, have to accept that you're not very likely to change the other person's mind. And then I think you have to construct, as as we have in our society, a sort of legal system that shows that there are lines that can't be crossed. And I do think that when we had the rise of multiculturalism and so on, quite a few mistakes were made. I, I wrote a column in 2010, and the hook was the fact that there hadn't been a single prosecution about FGM. And and I talked about the, the headline was The Limits of Multiculturalism. And I was strongly attacked for Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. And in fact, I was nominated by the Simon Wiesenthal Centre as for one of the top 10 anti-Semitic slurs of 2010, which was horrible. And for ages, the first thing, if you Googled me, that came up was anti-Semitism. It was on my Wikipedia entry. It was absolutely horrible. I had a migraine for two weeks. And, you know, I think anyone who knows me knows I'm not anti-Semitic. And plus the editor and the deputy editor who published that column and really liked it were both Jewish. So it would have been rather strange. Do you mind me just clarifying, was it because you you spoke about circumcision as well? For uh, no, no, it was, it was because I talked about what you can, I talked about, for example, when a seven, seven-year-old Hasidic Jewish boy sits next to me when I sit next to him on the bus and he stands up and recoils in case he touches you, in case you're menstruating and things like that. You know, the kind of different cultural practices, which can result in sexism and homophobia and all kinds of things that are counter to values that we fought very hard to to enshrine in our society. And I think as a result of mistakes that were made in those years, particularly on the left, actually, um, all kinds of behaviour and practices that aren't compatible with our society were allowed to continue and even flourish. And that has created problems. And I think that has contributed to what you could call racism and sort of bad race relations and even one could argue to some of the Islamic fundamentalism that has arisen out of, you know, aggression, misunderstanding or whatever. I think listening always has to be the starting point. But I think ultimately a society has to establish what is, you know, there has to be a legal system that establishes what is acceptable and what isn't. So we know that it isn't acceptable to have, you know, kind of home educate your children and tell them that it is absolutely wrong to have a homosexual relationship or whatever. 
So there are lines. It is very difficult, though, because if you believe something very, very passionately and the other person doesn't, it's natural to have a human instinct to want to change that person's belief. And I think it's absolutely fine to have an argument about that, as in an intellectual argument about that. But the truth is, and we've certainly discovered this through the whole Brexit experience, is that arguments don't generally change very much. These things happen at a different level, at an emotional level. And the, the other question you asked, which was about Christian's advice, well, actually, I do know somebody quite close to me who has a habit, who is an evangelical Christian, and who has a habit of writing huge letters to people who don't share his belief that are expressing his religious views, which is entirely inappropriate. And I think everybody's entitled to their views, but I think you do also have to think, is this going to be kind or not kind? And ultimately, I think what guides us really ought to be about kindness and not doing harm to other people. And it isn't a sensible thing to consistently try to impose your beliefs on other people who don't share them. Mm. I think that one's a really difficult one to square that I've gone round and round because I think probably the letter writer would say the ultimate kindness is you know offering this thing that I believe is most life-giving and good and true and beautiful thing. And that's just not an, you're not going to get an agreement on that. No. So how we navigate that particularly in kind of, so as is always called proselytism and religious people tend to call witness or evangelism, mm. is I think one of the, the things that we as a society need to work out very carefully as we go forward. Balance. There's a wonderful book called The Ethics of Evangelism. Which oh, interesting. Mm. Some of that. So I think, mm. I think religious communities are wrestling with how you have difficult conversations because without difficult conversations, you know, we're just ignoring our differences, aren't we? But in ways that are kind and honest and humble. And respectful to the other person's beliefs. Yes, indeed. Christina, thank you so much for talking to me today on The Sacred. Thank you for having me as your guest. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.